Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. In an increasingly dangerous world with near-peer competitors investing rapidly and posing new and evolving risks, improving the U.S. Department of Defense's resource allocation stands as a significant national security imperative. How does the U.S. Department of Defense, DOD, allocate and manage its resources? What is the DOD planning, programming, budgeting, and execution PPBE system? How can the PPBE Reform Commission address weaknesses to this system? And what are some of the key pitfalls the commission should avoid? I'll explore these questions and so much more with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Three Reforms to Improve Defense Resource Management, and most recently, John was former acting secretary of the U.S. Army. John, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you very much. So, John, would you give us a sense of the size of the U.S. Department of Defense's annual budget? Why is it a national security imperative to ensure that the budget is spent and used more effectively and efficiently as possible? Well, that's a great point, Michael. I, I think everybody knows that the Department of Defense is large. But unless you've actually worked there, worked around those numbers or, or experienced it yourself, I think some people don't, don't realize just how large it is. The 2023 budget submission, President's budget submission, was $773 billion for the Department of Defense, over three quarters of a trillion dollars. Uh, if the Department of Defense, if that budget were the GDP of a country, it'd be around the 20th or so, that uh, goes up and down little bit every year, but it'd be around the 20th or so largest country in the world, somewhere around the size of a Sweden or a Poland. If it were a company, it would be uh, far larger than any company in the world. Uh, half again as large as, as something like a Walmart, which is usually around one of the biggest uh, companies in the world. It, you know, it also has people oftentimes don't realize it has, you know, I think over, uh, it's been a while since I've added the numbers together. I think over about two and a half million people, if you include part-time, full-time, active duty, military, and, and civilian. Uh, so, you know, it's just an enormous organization, an enormous number of people. Uh, uh, even small improvements in incentives, even small improvements in budget allocations, et cetera, can have a huge difference at the Department of Defense. That's wonderful perspective. So we go from that good context, John, uh, to the heart of your new report for the IBM Center, and it's around the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution, PPBE uh, process. Could you tell us more about the history and purpose of this system uh, and, and maybe describe it for us? Absolutely. So it really gets back to, to that challenge that we just talked about, about how large, about how immense. Uh, the Department of Defense is. So if you were the Secretary of Defense, just think about what the challenge is for you to think about how to allocate $773 billion and to try and allocate it in a way that gives you the most national security you possibly can get for that set of resources. That's an incredibly complex task. In, in fact, it's, it's an impossible task. No Secretary of Defense can do that. So PDBE really grew out of that challenge. 
You go back to the end of World War II, we actually had separate departments at that time. You had the Department of War, which was the Army, and, and the Air Force was part of that at the time. And then you had the Department of the Navy. They were separate cabinet agencies. But they started to get merged in the late 1940s. Uh, the Air Force got broken out as an independent service. So now you had the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, the Marine Corps, of course, being part of the Navy. Uh, that was that was a tremendous challenge. You think about the challenges we have with Department of Homeland Security now. That we were going through that in the late 1940s and into the 50s. It, in fact, you know, the first secretary, not because of this, but the first secretary had had some health issues. He actually committed suicide. This was this was just a, a tremendous challenge that we were not uh, that we were trying to bring together these organizations with different cultures, different missions, uh, into a single organization. So it was really not until uh, 1961, a new administration, new Secretary of Defense came in, new Comptroller came in, and they really wanted to build out a system that put the Secretary of Defense in control of the department, and they viewed the control of resources as the key to that. So that's how, uh, that's when uh, PPB got started. It, its ideas were quite simple. I'm going to start with broad strategy, and then I'm going to have what I'll call the planning phase. I'm going to have translate that broad, enduring, multi-year strategy into annual guidance for what my priorities should be in capability areas and programs and forces, et cetera. I'm going to then translate that broad planning guidance into programmatic guidance. I'm going to now build out the actual programs, the actual acquisition programs, the actual operating programs that will uh, implement uh, this strategy. And then I'm going to refine that into a very precise budget for the next year. And then I'll submit that to Congress. I'll, I'll get the appropriations acts and then I'll execute that budget. So that's where you got the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system. John, that's wonderful. As a follow-up, would you explain for us the process? And what I mean by process of PPBE, I'm talking about the core components and those leaders or areas that operate these components. Another thing I was interested in, along with explaining the process, John, I was wondering, how does this sort of differ from traditional budgeting? So let me start and let me focus mostly on the headquarters process. So what we'll call OSD, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So primarily what we're talking about there, and, and, and we've had these going back, we've always had somebody doing policy, whether it be the Joint Staff or the, the what's now the Undersecretary of Policy. So we have somebody uh, setting policies and creating that enduring strategy. We've also always had, or at least for uh, as long as anybody alive knows, we've had a comptroller that, that builds the budget. But what we had back then uh, in the 50s was we had strategies being written, budgets being built, largely not talking to each other. Uh, strategy would be unresourced informed. It would be larger than what the budget could support. It would be aspirational. The budget would be built on what can I fit into a finite amount of resources, what force training do I need to do to get the various stakeholders uh, aligned with this, et cetera. So really PDD was about trying to bridge those and really connect those. The challenge that we face in domestic agencies and, and, and of course still face in the security agencies even today. Uh, so we added two phases, the planning and the programming. So now we have a part of policy that writes enduring strategic documents. Then we have the same part of policy or, or a slightly different part of policy that says, let's translate that now into uh, this annual uh, set of priorities for resource allocation. Then we created a new organization that's now called CAKE, Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation. Way back in the day, it was called Systems Analysis. 
been called other names, uh, some pleasant, some unpleasant, some official, some unofficial. But uh, we've got this office cake, uh, which is, again, we're talking about the Office of Secretary of Defense. They own the programming piece. So they're the analysts that are saying, all right, if these are our objectives, if this is where we're going, their job is to do analysis and to say, what are the pros and cons of putting the money in option A, putting the money in option B, putting the money in option C. Then you've got the comptroller who still owns the budgeting phase and is going to take that program plan and now look at the budget year and say, is the budget year properly priced, properly configured for a submission to Congress? Then they're going to present and defend that budget to Congress, and then they're going to oversee execution as well. So we've got policy, CAPE, and comptroller as being the key organizations at the Office of Secretary of Defense. And then what you see in the services is you actually see organizational structures that mirror that. You have usually some sort of G3, N3, A3. That's a, an operational organization that's going to have the planning phase. Then you're going to have some sort of G8, N8, A8. These are the staff codes that the military departments use uh, that does the programming phase. And then you're going to have a financial management and controller office that owns the, uh, the budgeting and the execution phases. With all the criticisms which we'll touch on, what are some of the benefits associated with uh, the PPBE process? Yeah, the first one is the one that we kind of talked about when we were talking about why it was created in the first place. Uh, leading the Department of Defense is an absolutely impossible task. No Secretary of Defense, the most capable person in the world, cannot walk into the Secretary of Defense job uh, and perform flawlessly and, and control $773 billion and two and a half million people and fully align them to the strategic direction of the country to get the largest amount of national security for taxpayer resources. PBBE is a tool to enable that, to get as close as you can. It breaks decisions up into pieces, into phases. I'm gonna make big rock directional decisions. Then I'm gonna make kind of more specific programming decisions. Then I'm going to make uh, very specific budget decisions. So it breaks the decisions up into pieces. Uh, it allows the process, it allows the bureaucracy, allows this immense organization to digest those pieces one at a time, direction, programmatic, budgets, et cetera. Um, so uh, it takes an impossible problem and breaks it out into at least a, uh, at least uh, I can get as far there as I can. Uh, in terms of trying to take control of the Department of Defense, trying to corral its resources and move them in the right direction. So the next question, John, is around, you know, some of the limitations. It's often criticized that the system is bureaucratic, slow, cumbersome, and expensive. Uh, how do these impact, how do these criticisms impact the speed and agility with which uh, the DOD can can uh, modernize? And, and are these criticisms valid? Uh, so first, uh, yes, uh, they are absolutely true. It is bureaucratic, it is expensive, and it is slow. The challenge, I think, for reformers, uh, for the PPB Commission, uh, and for the people who work in the system is, is how to, uh, some of that's going to be inevitable, so what part of that is inevitable, but what part of that can I actually fix and change? It's not surprising that there's an enormous number of people, an enormous amount of resources, that are consumed in trying to figure out how to allocate these $773 billion. What's become important in the near term, or what's, what's brought this issue to a head, is you know, we spent, as a nation, the last two decades really focused on the terrorism threat in the Middle East, Iraq and Afghanistan, the post-9-11 uh, global war on terrorism. 
what was happening during that time, you know, we were doing the best we can to keep our eye on the, on the rest of the world, and, and we did do that, of course. Uh, but what was happening during that time was some of our old competitors, uh, in particular Russia and China, were watching us, were studying us, uh, looking at what we were doing well, looking at where we struggled, and starting to invest uh, significantly. So China and Russia have been investing uh, significant amounts in the modernization of their militaries. And at the same time, we're seeing as, as they invest, as they become more capable, we're seeing them behave in much more aggressive ways. I mean, obviously what we're seeing with Russia, but you go back to first you see Georgia, uh, then you see uh, the southern part of Ukraine and the Crimea, and now you see uh, the full invasion of Ukraine. You look at China and you look at the crackdown in Hong Kong a few years ago. Then you look at uh, the increasing belligerence in the South China Sea and to their neighbors, and you look at the increasing belligerence to Taiwan. So what's that meant for the United States is as we, as the terrorism threat recedes, it's still there and we still have to pay attention to it, but as it goes from being the number one priority to something we can now put into a more manageable state, we have now had a reemergence of something we really haven't seen since the Cold War, which is near-peer competitors, large, industrialized, wealthy nations uh, investing significantly in their militaries to try and change uh, the world order, to try and rebalance the world to their more author authoritarian and, and less democratic and less free plans and, and preferences. So what you've got is a significant shift in the national security environment over the last decade. And now you've got the U.S. now saying, okay, I, I've gotten the terrorist threat back down to a manageable level. Uh, now I'm in catch-up mode. So I now, and, and the terrorist threat was different, right? I was working largely in permissive environments. I, I had air superiority. I had uh, dominance in much of the battle space. I was dealing primarily with relatively less sophisticated, largely asymmetric threats. Now I have to think about, I have to, to shift gears now. I have to retool back to a near-peer competitor. The potential, we hope it doesn't come to this, but the potential for large-scale combat operations uh, against uh, very sophisticated, technologically sophisticated, very large uh, military uh, adversaries or potential adversaries. So we've got now, we have to shift gears in a very dramatic way. And not only that, but we have to do it in a very quick way. And so the criticism of PPB, well, you know, it's great for running the status quo. It's great for making incremental changes. What do you do when you have to turn quickly, when you have to, and, and the clock is ticking. I mean, we don't know ultimately what China's gonna do, but you know, we have this concern that if they do wanna take Taiwan by force, do they see the window as in the next few years? So we're in this very rapid, trying to readjust, realign, and start to feel the capabilities that we need to be able to deter, hopefully deter, and if not deter, then be able to react and respond militarily to a threat in the Pacific or the threat that we already face right now in Ukraine and in Europe if it were to, to spread. So the issue becomes we've got to now a national security imperative to change, to move this really big, really slow ship. We have to change it and move it uh, in a dramatically different direction. And the question is, can the PPD process do that? Uh, it's very good. Uh, maybe if it's used correctly, it can. But is it becoming a hindrance in that in some ways? And that's what the PPB Commission is looking at.
Yeah. Um, and John, you do a, a wonderful job pointing out in the discussion around uh, near peer competitors and speed and agility of modernization in order to meet them. Uh, Congress first directed a fundamental restructuring of the defense acquisition system. And I was hoping you could maybe give us a high level overview of some of the changes to that pr process. And how does that uh, kind of link back or address some of the issues uh, relative to the PPBE. So Congress, so Congress recognized everything I just said about the need to accelerate our product development life cycles, the need to get new technologies, technologies changing at such a fast rate, getting those new technologies into the hands of soldiers and sailors and airmen uh, in the force uh, much more quickly uh, than we've historically been able to. So, so Congress's first move was to work on the acquisition process. I would say, you know, somebody who's, who's studied that more closely than I can probably summarize better, but I would say a couple of the big points of that were one, decentralizing it more. It had been, uh, we all know the tension in acquisition, right? One tension is I want it to be agile and I want to go out and take risks and, and develop new programs and new projects, new capabilities uh, uh, that are brilliant and, and, and stair-step improvements uh, in our capability. The other side is I don't want acquisition programs to fail. I don't want a headline about billions of dollars spent that didn't produce anything. So that's the tension in acquisition. And what had happened over many years is we put in more and more safeguards, we centralized more and more of the decision-making. And so we had a lot of large acquisitions, most large acquisitions going all the way up to headquarters, going all the way up to the Secretary of Defense, the Office of Secretary of Defense level, creating huge bureaucracies to move a program forward. So one big part of uh, acquisition reform was pushing that down. We have pushed almost all acquisition decision authorities now down to the service level, to the military department level, uh, trying to get more streamlined, more faster, more agile decisions. The second big thing that I would attribute there was we've increased the authority. This is only the authority we've had for a while, but we've increased things like these other transaction authorities, OTAs, OTs, uh, trying to create uh, more streamlined, less FAR-based, federal acquisition regulation-based processes that let people go out quickly and engage with the private sector when a new technology is emerging or when, when, when new companies are coming around, get at them quickly, uh, get something in the door, get the department to take a look at it, get some field tests going out there, and then let it grow into a full program uh, within the Department of Defense. So you've got that going on, decentralization, pushing things down, creating new authority, or at least expanding and enhancing the authorities we have to do more streamlined things like the OTA, the other transaction authority process. So then Congress turns to PPPE and says, okay, we've done acquisition. Acquisition is now moving forward. It's, it's at least to date, it's so far been successful. You know, probably uh, we don't know uh, what all the, uh, the successes and what all the hidden costs and, and problems with it will be, but we're, we're making a lot of progress on it and we've gotten some good results so far. So next let's turn to the resource allocation process. And there again, a big part of it, there's other parts and we'll talk about other parts, but a big part of it was how can we now make that reinforce what we've done on the acquisition side uh, to move uh, things faster. That's terrific, John. So what prompted your interest in studying this particular topic and writing this report? So, so I've worked in this most of my career. It's, it's, a, it's a topic near and near to my heart. Uh, my, I was in the Army a long time ago, but my first DC job, my first job in Washington DC was as an analyst in CAPE, back then it was called Program Analysis and Evaluation. I worked there for several years. I've actually led the uh, Program Analysis and Evaluation Office in DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I've been out of government and think tanks, uh, working on uh, PPBE and resource allocation problems. And then most recently, I was back in government 
and I had the opportunity to, to serve in a couple of roles, first as uh, the Army CFO, the Army Comptroller, then as uh, the Acting Director of CAPE, and then as the Acting Secretary of the Army. So I, I eat, live, breathe, sleep, uh, whatever the right uh, words are, this process for much of my career. Uh, it's got a lot of good points. It's got a lot of points that could be improved. It's got a lot of challenges. It could be areas for improvement. So I think uh, this commission is a great opportunity and hopefully uh, getting the word out and talking about these things will help the commission uh, succeed in this very important mission. How can the PPVE process be reformed and improved? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ways to improve resource management in the U.S. Department of Defense with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Three Reforms to Improve Defense Resource Management. So, John, um, you mentioned in, the, in your report that the uh, political cycle plays a significant role in shaping the PPB&E process. The new administration, if it's a change of administration, even if it's a, a continuation of a previous administration, but they're changing folks in senior leadership roles. So can you give us a sense in, in the case of a new situation where you've got a new secretary of defense, perhaps a new deputy sec, what kind of budget issues do they face? What do they have to triage? That's, that's a great question. And I've been, you know, I've been part of many transitions. Most recently, I was in the government for the last transition. And, and I, you know, People like you and I who study these things and, and eat, live, and breathe, and sleep these things, it kind of comes second nature to us, but it's sometimes surprising, or it shouldn't be surprising to us, that, that a lot of these new teams come in, they don't understand these things. So this is immensely important. Let's put ourselves on the ground in a new administration on January 20th. You're executing. We're four months into executing a fiscal year. That appropriation bill has already been passed. Uh, our opportunity to move things, to change things, that, you know, everybody wants to do stuff in the first 100 days, right? Well, our opportunity to move things, if it involves moving money across accounts, is actually through reprogramming actions. And we'll actually take our first, we'll, we can do some, you might feel a jumpstart a few, but you're really going to do a big kind of omnibus reprogramming probably in the summer. So it's January 20th, and you'd have now three or four months to think through how you're going to move money for the year uh, that you're executing right then. First 100 days will be long gone by then. Uh, well, then you start, okay, well, I'll make my bigger changes the next fiscal year. 
Uh, well, the next fiscal year, you actually, you're technically supposed to submit that budget to Congress in February, two weeks later, a week and a half later, actually. Uh, now, we usually uh, don't meet that uh, when there's a change uh, in administration. But uh, so you have about maybe two to three months uh, to do that. So, and, and you're actually, that's actually sooner than your omnibus reprogram checks. You're actually going to make, first, you're going to make your decisions about the next fiscal year. And then you're going to go and make your reprogram decisions about the current fiscal year. So you're going to have about two or three months to make those changes. And when you're talking about an incredibly complex $773 billion budget, your ability to make changes in two months is relatively limited. So you're going to do reprogramming for the current fiscal year, but that's several months away, and you're limited there uh, extensively by what Congress will approve. Uh, you're making your decisions now for the next fiscal year, what you can do in two months to a $773 billion budget is, is limited. You say, okay, well, the next one after that, I'm really going to put my mark on that. Well, wait a second. I have to submit that. OMB wants to put that to bed no later than, than probably December, pre preferably in November. So you're January. So you have about nine or 10 months to build your first really full budget that you will own. Nine to 10 months is great. That's a lot more than two months, but even nine to 10 months, if you're thinking about significant changes to weapon systems investment, significant changes to readiness levels or operational levels, even nine to 10 months is, is a very, uh, turns out to be a very limited amount of time. So then you'll say, okay, well, it'll be the next fiscal year after that. You have a full, you have a full cycle there. You're going to be at the front end of that cycle. You can issue guidance out to the services. You can develop things. You can do original analyses, new analyses to inform things, right? So you can really put your stamp on that budget. Oh, by the way, that's the last budget you're gonna execute in this administration if uh, in a single term. So that just illustrates the challenges that a new team walking in faces. So, you know, to be effective, a new team has to walk in the door and they have to have that, that chart that kind of stacks these things up in chronological space and say, what do I wanna do this fiscal year to jumpstart my initiative? All right, I need to have the reprogrammings ready for the summer. What can I do that I know enough that in two months I can move the money and be relatively confident I'm not making a drastic mistake? All right, I'll jump those into the first fiscal year's full budget I'm going to submit. What do I can I develop in seven, eight, nine months uh, and get into the next fiscal year? What's going to and then what are the things that are going to take a full development cycle uh, to get in? And I'm going to put those in that last one which recognizing is my last bite in this term. I want to talk about account structures, John. Why does account structure uh, have important implications for control and incentives? And perhaps you could outline, you know, in your report, you provide a vivid illustration of the challenges that bad account structures can cause through sort of misalignment of incentives. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, account structure in the simplest form, right? It's just how you bucket resources. But it uh, has tremendous impacts. And sometimes I think people view it as a green eye shade, kind of a very technical issue, and they don't understand uh, the true importance of account structure. It's gonna define how you control the funds, right? It's gonna define how you appropriate the funds, how the funds are legally controlled, where you can move funds back and forth between uh, accounts. It's gonna uh, affect the incentives uh, that you have. People will know what they're held accountable for. They'll know what resources they have. So what structure they get those resources in affects, fundamentally affects the incentives uh, that they face. The example I use in the report that I think you're alluding to is the Defense Health Program. 
Uh, in fact, you and I, Michael, have talked about this fentanyl program in the past. This was a very large account, one of the largest accounts in the DOD. Uh, the defense health program itself is about $35 billion. If you add in all the other pieces and other accounts, you're over $50 billion. So we're talking about an account in the Department of Defense, which is larger than most cabinets, significantly larger than most cabinet agencies. The Department of Defense has two missions, really, two core missions that it supports out of the defense health program. The first is the operational mission, the one that is probably obvious to folks. We have to have trauma surgeons, emergency medicine physicians that can go into a combat zone and perform life-saving care on the battlefield. The second mission is we provide a healthcare benefit to military members or family members, retirees, et cetera. What we've done in the past is we've combined that into the same account. So we just have one big pot of money and we call it the Defense Health Program and it's support the operational mission and it's to support the beneficiary care mission. That's created a lot of problems over the past. The operational mission is primarily a trauma mission. It's primarily an injury-based mission. It uh, is relatively small in the big scheme of things for the Department of Defense. Fortunately, it only comes around every 15 to 20 years is when we need it in a big way, when we go to, to active war. Uh, the other mission, the beneficiary care mission, is actually uh, numerically is quite larger. We have nine and a half million beneficiaries that the Department of Defense is responsible for providing a healthcare benefit for. It's a significantly larger in terms of dollars. And it's a very different mission. It is primarily obstetrics. What do military members do? They have babies. Primarily pediatrics. They have lots of kids. And it's a lot of family practice. So by combining them and putting one person in charge, we've now created a trade space where somebody says, all right, am I going to allocate my resources to the operational mission? Or am I going to resource re, uh, allocate my resources to the beneficiary care mission? The beneficiary care mission is every day. It's getting congressional letters and congressional complaints every day. It's larger numerically, dollar-wise, people-wise, et cetera. So the attention becomes uh, focused on the beneficiary care mission. So we have a large military force of uniformed pediatricians and obstetricians. We have a military hospital structure that's focused on delivering pediatric care and delivering babies. And we float along, we deliver this benefit, then a war breaks out. War breaks out. And all of a sudden, we need trauma surgeons to deploy, and we don't have any in the inventory. Or we have uh, what happened in this case if we had uh, less than 10, probably, at the start of Iraq and Afghanistan uh, in the inventory. The medical force, by the way, is 200,000 people, 200,000 uniformed military medical providers. Uh, we might have had 10 to 15 trauma surgeons uh, in the force. We needed hundreds at the start of Iraq and Afghanistan. So we've had an incentive structure that incentivized focusing on the day-to-day -day mission of beneficiary healthcare, taking risk against the operational mission. War breaks out, uh, and we find out we're not ready uh, for that operational mission. Researchers have gone back and looked from World War II to present and said what happens is every war we start out with, with higher death rates because we're not ready, and then we gradually, as the war proceeds, we get more and more focused on the operational mission. We bring the death rates down, the survival rates we push up. It's estimated that 100,000 of our fatalities in combat have been because of this peacetime effect where we weren't ready uh, at the start of the war. So that's an empirical estimate. I don't know if it's a little bit smaller than that, a little bit bigger than that, but it just gives you a sense of the magnitude of this problem. So when you think about an incentive structure and when you think about how you should be organizing resources to create the best incentives in the organization, you should have an operational mission like delivering combat casualty care 
into in a trade space and they set up accounts that are focused on operational things like the readiness of our ground vehicles, the readiness of our air forces, the readiness of our naval forces to, to go to war. That's where the operational medical mission should reside. And we should have a trade space between there. Should I put more in medical? Should I put more in logistics? Should I put more in training time to keep the force uh, ready for the fight? Similarly, beneficiary care, incredibly important. We don't ever want to neglect or, or not deliver a high quality healthcare benefit, but it should be in a trade space with other compensation elements. It should be in there with, with cash salary, with retired pay. And that should be one set of accounts with one set of decision makers saying, what's the most efficient way to compensate the force? Should I increase healthcare benefits? Should I increase base pay? Should I do something else? So there's an example of, we took two different missions, we put them together into the same account, put them out of the trade space to where they really belong. And we've really had uh, some really bad outcomes because of it. You know, John, we get to the crux of your report. And that is the reforms. You you identify three reforms, and I kind of want to merge and tee it up. Could you tell us what those reforms are at a high level? But more importantly, perhaps um, in introducing those three, you could talk about the first one and, and and help us understand what you mean by strategic analysis. So, uh, the first one is really getting back to that original 1961 vision of the planning phase, and how are we going to take strategic vision? and bring it back and translate it into something that can inform resource allocation. The second two actually relate to this. The, the second one uh, is, is, is getting at that speed of acquisition and the speed of being able to, to turn uh, towards this near peer uh, competitor and fielding new capabilities in a faster way, which is fundamentally related to our new strategy. And then the third was using data to inform decisions. We do a lot of modeling and simulation Sometimes we don't look at actual realized performance data as much as we should. They all interrelate to each other, so they all tie, and they all tie back to that first point. So what I mean by strategic analysis is the, the analytic connective tissue between an enduring long-term strategy and the actual programs and budgets that the Department of Defense builds, uses, guides, uh, resources. So we talked at the beginning about that change in strategy. We're moving from a two-decade focus on terrorism to a realignment to near-peer competitors. We still have to look at regional threats like Iran and North Korea. We still have to consider the terrorism threat as well, but we're gonna focus on and try to realign ourselves to this near-peer threat. Okay, that's great. That actually, it got bipartisan support. Uh, uh, Democrats, Republicans uh, both agree on this, but then the question becomes, okay, so what does that mean? What does it mean for force structure, for the different types of forces, the different types of units we're going to have? What does it mean for posture, where we should have forces uh, arrayed, particularly in the Pacific when we think about uh, China and perhaps threats to Taiwan, threats in North Korea, threats elsewhere in the region? What does it mean for new capabilities? And this is where the, the national defense strategy that, that articulated this, this realignment of strategy came out in 2018, we're four years after that, and we really have not... Uh, kind of come up with the major uh, implications of it uh, for our programs, our forces, our posture, our budgets. Uh, and that's because we don't have this connective tissue that sits in between the articulation of a strategy and the allocation of resources. So the strategic analysis would be when you look at different threats, when you look at different types of wars and war fights that might play out, and you analytically look at those and say, what are the implications of this change in strategy for the programs, forces, posture, capabilities that we need. Yeah, John, we, we were talking about the next uh, reform you point out 
in your report. And I'm trying to get a sense of uh, the agile and the speed. I think that's where the next reform is. And I was wondering what can be done in this area? What are some of the uh, aspects of the process that can be reformed to keep the deliberation analytic discipline, but make it fa- work faster and more be more agile? I think this is one of the toughest ones, actually, uh, because of what you just said. Uh, so I think it was one of the primary motivators of Congress, the authorizing committees in Congress that, that implemented a commission. So I think it's one of the most important ones as well. So I certainly think it's one of the highest priorities of the commission. Now, having said that, I think it's going to run into exactly what you just said. I don't know what the best options are here, and this is where they're going to have to study it. A lot of it is really going to reside in execution, and a lot of it is really going to reside with congressional processes like reprogrammings, the account structure that Congress imposes, and the granularity with which Congress wants to uh, allocate its resources. So what I actually talk about in the report is, yes, it's important, and yes, the commission should spend uh, some serious time on this trying to figure out what it can do within uh, the discretion that the Department of Defense has. But it also needs to combine uh, that process look with changes to business practices within the Department of Defense. Uh, and so what I say, what I argue in the report is you really have to bring into this new business process, new business practices, regardless of what you do to pro- the process. And I name two, I list two. One is digital transformation. So the idea of if a traditional, I'm going to oversimplify, so this isn't exactly uh, true, it's kind of exaggerated, but if a typical product development lifecycle is I identify some sort of need, some sort of gap in capability, and then I go out and I, I develop some sort of requirement, and then I go out and I develop some sort of prototype, and I build a, a model of it, a physical representation of it, and then I learn from that, and I change it, I change the requirements, I build a new prototype, uh, I go back and forth on that multiple times. I consume years and years going from requirement to science and technology to development, uh, ultimately until I get into production. Digital transformation says, let's take as much of that as we can and move that into the digital sphere. Let's try to do that through simulation, through uh, a digital twin is one of the the key aspects uh, of digital transformation. Try to use digital engineering uh, to resolve as much of this as possible. We're still going to have physical prototypes. We're still going to do physical testing, but let's try to automate and digitize as much of that as possible. And then when we got that digital twin and we move into production, now I can just run straight into, through this digital thread, I can run straight into advanced manufacturing processes like additive manufacturing and, and robotic manufacturing and things like that. So trying to accelerate the product development lifecycle through digitization. That's one. A second one is as a service purchaser. Now, this gets a bad rap in some places, right? Everybody that, that that's probably listening to this show remembers the Boeing tanker leasing challenge 20 years ago. Uh, why are you leasing something when you have the lowest capital costs of anybody in the market? Why don't you just buy? That's the traditional DOD, traditional government model. But things have changed in that in fundamental ways. One is, traditionally, we were thinking about capabilities that DOD was the only person investing in S&P for, science and technology, was the only one investing in development for and was going to be the only customer buying it at the end of the process. A lot of the technologies we're looking at now, like AI, artificial intelligence and autonomy, autonomous vehicles, uh, a lot of what we're doing in space and imaging in space, a lot of these things, we're, we're not the dominant player. In fact, we're just one player among many. And in fact, the private sector is now investing more for commercial use than we are. We're actually now the 
the situation is reversed. We're not the first mover and everybody else will piggyback off our investments. Now the commercial sector is the first mover, is the primary mover, and we're going to piggyback off them. So the, the, the challenge in some of these, not every area, but in some areas is fundamentally changed. In those areas, when we move into an as-a-service model, when we rent the capability, instead of buying, instead of developing, designing, owning, fielding the technology, we can now leverage investments that others are making to make our costs cheaper. So I think as a service purchasing, it makes us more agile, it spreads the cost to the private sector, uh, is another area where you could actually try to really move uh, and make things faster. Yeah, John, I do have a follow-up question. I was hoping to get into this because you you introduced the, uh, the concept of the, the, the valley of death. For our audience, uh, what is the valley of death? And, and really the question I have is around... What is the relationship or how does the Valley of Death or how does the PPB&E process or system create or impact the reality of the Valley of Death? Yeah, that's a, that's a great topic. It's very topical today. Uh, Valley of Death was a major uh, motivator for the PPBE Commission. And I tend to be a bit of a contrarian on it. So I'll, I'll give you my two cents and, and others can discount it and point out how it's wrong. So first off, what is it? So the value of death, and it can happen at any stage in a product development life cycle, but there's really kind of two key values that we see. First, you know, you start with some sort of, you need something. And so you start with some sort of science and technology effort, SCP effort. So you have scientists, technologists trying to say, can I prove out the technology? Can we actually solve this problem uh, with a material solution? So you have an SP process. Then, you know, in a typical and a stylized product development life cycle, then you have some sort of development process. Okay, the technology has been proven out. Now let's see if we can operationalize it. Let's see if we can actually build a prototype that would actually be feelable, that would actually deliver capability to soldiers in the field or sailors on the sea or airmen uh, out uh, in the operational force. So you have a development cycle. And then if you've proven that and you, you've said, all right, this is actually, we can now turn this into a feelable platform, then you have the procurement process. So that's a stylized, simplified view of the product development life cycle. You also have then fielding, training, sustainment, and, and disposal, of course. So the valley of death would be, all right, what if the S&T folks, the scientists, technologists, what if they uh, have a great idea, they prove out a technology, and they succeed, uh, their projects succeed, and the development community looks at it and says, no, nah, I'm not interested, so it dies. That's one valley of death. The second valley of death is, all right, the developers take something, they pick it up, they run it, they run it to prototype, the prototype succeeds, they say, this is translatable into an operational platform that can see it in the operating forces and the acquisition community and the, the operational forces look at it and say, I don't want it. So it dies. So you just spent hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars developing something uh, and it doesn't transition and, and deliver uh, capability to the field. So those are the two traditional values of that. There's a lot of talk right now about, well, uh, what do we do in acquisition reform to minimize the value of debt? Uh, can the PPBE commission take steps to minimize the value of debt? And this is where I become a bit of a contrarian. The first point I'd make is, let's understand what causes the value of debt. The value of debt is fundamentally about a communication issue. I use the analogy uh, of the military. If you're a military member and you're on patrol, uh, let's say you're a ground force, you're in the Army and the Marines, and you're patrolling through the woods, and you have first platoon moving, and then behind them you have second platoon moving. And let's say that second platoon starts to fall behind and eventually loses sight of first platoon and you have a breaking contact. And now you have two units moving, uh, not in a connected way on patrol. First question to ask is who's responsible for a breaking contact? 
And what any military person will tell you instantly is the person in front is responsible for breaking contact. It, it was second platoon that fell behind. It was second platoon that couldn't keep up. But it's the person in front that's responsible for looking backwards and making sure second platoon is still there. And if they're not there, telling first platoon to slow down. So I use that analogy when I talk about the valley of death. If the S&T folks undertake a project and they think it's a brilliant project and it's going to save the world, but they have not talked to the developers and they do not have buy-in from the developers. I'm not saying that the developers have to program money and have a, a, a piggy bank of money sitting aside to receive it, but the developers have to be at the table saying, yes, I think this has merit and if you prove it out, we will put it on uh, our priority list uh, to move it forward. If they haven't had that conversation, that's a leadership failure. That's a communication failure. Uh, projects should not start if they don't have buy-in from the downstream partner. That doesn't mean that the downstream partner needs to have a veto authority. If the S&T folks think this is a valuable project, the developers say, I don't want it, and it's simply because they're high-down traditionalists and they're not willing to look at the future, elevate it up the chain of command. Get the secretary of the military department or the secretary of defense to order the developers to take this seriously and to set aside money for it. That, so it's not that they have a veto authority, it's that you have to have those two parties talking to each other before a project starts. Same thing for developers. If they, did, they start a project, if the, the strategic capabilities office in OSD, which does development style projects, is not talking to the Army or the Navy or the Air Force about who's gonna receive this project if it succeeds, then shame on them. It's a leadership failure. The PPE process has very little to do with it. In fact, the PPE process helps by having to program money into the future. Uh, you can actually see if there's money uh, out in the out years uh, that can receive this project. So, so there's a lot of talk about value deaths. It's a lot. Uh, some of it's somewhat imprecise sometimes. It's first and foremost a communication and a leadership problem. Now, I think there is a an emerging value of death problem, uh, which is very important, and that is that conversation we had a few minutes ago where a lot of uh, research, a lot of development funding is now moving to the private sector. So AI and autonomy, space, et cetera, locking up. So now what if you have uh, a new technology that's being developed outside of the department? What if the department's not aware of it? And then they come with a proven project to the department and say, uh, here it is, uh, and my investors will support me for three more months. And so if you give me a contract within three months, you can have it. If not, I go bankrupt and the technology goes away. That is a new valley of death, which I think is very important. But even here, I would say, uh, this is an execution problem. It's not a planning or programming challenge. Uh, and number one, and number two, even here, it is a communication problem. So why didn't the communication occur in this place? And here, I, I think my view is, the Department of Defense does not talk enough and does not interact enough uh, with industry. Uh, and, we, and we know why, we know why, because they overinterpret, they misinterpret laws and regulations that make acquisition officials very scared to talk to anybody in the private sector. So I think even here, improving the acquisition process, great, it'll help at the margin. Improving the PPPE process, great, it'll help at the margin. The real problem is uh, misinterpretation and overinterpretation of the law that prevents DOD uh, acquisition professionals, operational community, et cetera, from being willing to go out and talk uh, to the private sector in an open and transparent way uh, and learn what's out there and be able to present their problems to the community that's out there. What prompted the creation of the PPBE Reform Commission? And what are some of the key pitfalls it should avoid? 
We'll explore these questions and more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ways to improve resource management in the U.S. Department of Defense with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Three Reforms to Improve Defense Resource Management. John, the third area uh, which you talk about reform to the PPBE process is, um, you know, increasing program evaluation and the performance data and its use. Why is that so important? And maybe you could give us a sense of what's going on, what's the current state, and what's required to be reform in this area. Yeah. So, so the Department of Defense is a very analytic organization, and I think that's one of its strengths. Uh, in the Department of Defense you've got a culture of you're expected to walk into the meeting with your analysis. You're not expected to walk in with anecdotes. You're not expected to walk in with emotion. You're expected to walk into the room with your analysis. So that's the good. The bad is the analysis is hard. Uh, and you know, fortunately, right, we don't, we don't go to war very often. We go to war about every 25 years. Uh, so when you're thinking about uh, this capability versus that capability and its effectiveness in a war fight, you don't have already available operational data to use. So most of the analysis, much of the analytic culture in DOD is a model is a very forward-looking modeling and simulation-based approach uh, where you're building some sort of scientific, you know, either engineering or physics-based or biology-based or whatever it is, models uh, of the future from the bottom up. And you're using those simulation environments to then think about should I invest in A or should I invest in B? A lot of that's necessary, a lot of that's done very well uh, in the department, but Within the department, it's the department has come to rely on it too much, uh, and it's become a problem. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of data. I mean, even in the warfighting domain, we have a tremendous amount of data from Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. But a lot of decisions the department has to make uh, aren't uh, directly in the warfighting domain. They have to make business decisions. They have to make uh, what we call kind of supporting decisions in the logistics area and the intelligence area. And, other. and we have data that we can bring to bear uh, on these things. So a big part, uh, the third recommendation of my report, a, a big part of the report is about uh, we need to use that data to inform those decisions in a much more structured and systematic way than we currently do. So John, you've mentioned a, a couple of times the PPBE Reform Commission. What prompted Congress to establish this commission and what's its mission? So I think the biggest one is, is one that we've talked about a little bit already which is uh, that imperative to shorten 
the product development life cycle. This we're moving from a, a less sophisticated uh, asymmetric threat uh, in terrorism in the Middle East to a much more sophisticated, much more technologically advanced, much larger challenge of near-peer adversaries. We need to get these new technologies, whether it be directed energy, whether it be hypersonic, whether it be AI and autonomy, whether it be space, whether it be cyber. We need to get these new technologies into the hands of the warfighters quicker. Uh, we need to do it very fast because we don't know what the Chinese are going to do. We don't know what the Russians are going to do to effectively deter them. We've got to get these technologies fielded in the hands of the warfighter as quickly as possible. I think that trying to accelerate the product development and fielding timeline was, was the biggest uh, uh, desire and motivator, uh, is my guess from what I read and what I talk and when I talk to them, was their biggest motivator. John, you point out along with the reforms some pitfalls that uh, the new commission should avoid. Can you give us a sense of what those key pitfalls are? Yep. Probably the single biggest complaint the commission is going to hear is people are going to come in and say, my program didn't get funded. Uh, my program is, is the most important thing uh, to implement the national defense strategy. So therefore, the PPB process is broken. Uh, you know, that is not a problem of the PPB process, right? The PPB process is about making choices. If you want to effectively allocate resources, you have to make choices. You're not going to be able to fund every good idea that's out there in the department or that's outside of the department. So the fact that somebody didn't get funded is not only not a problem with the PPV process, it's actually the fundamental and the core strength of the PPV process that it enabled the secretary to make choices. The biggest thing, in my guess, the biggest thing the commission is going to hear is if we had a better process, I would have gotten more money. The fact is no process reform can eliminate the reality of resource scarcity. Resource scarcity exists, will always exist. A process will always be needed to allocate resources uh, to the highest value, highest return options. I, I list several others in the report. One is the Department of Defense budget building process is a discretionary process. Uh, there might be a tendency uh, to want to legislate uh, parts of it. I, I would recommend against that. You put a, an internal DOD process in the legislation that's going to be even more outdated and even more sclerotic and more bureaucratic and less agile than it currently is. So I would recommend against uh, legislating it. Uh, there's going to be a desire. The other side of that is there'll be a desire to uh, say, okay, well, if Congress just gave us a blank check, uh, we'd be able to move the money around in any way we want to, and that would be great, and then uh, everything would be would be uh, perfect. Uh, Congress is not going to give us a blank slate. Congress is not going to give the Department of Defense a blank slate. So, you, you know, if the commission does not try to recognize and, and respect uh, the role that Congress plays, it's going to create uh, uh, things that sit on the shelf. Uh, so there's several others, but I think those are some of the keys. So as we close, John, any other advice you'd give the commission as it's uh, forming? Yeah, I, I would think, you know, my recommendation to the commission, I, I, you know, you've got stellar people. There's 14 people in the commission. I know most of them that are they're, they're top performers are incredibly experienced uh, and knowledgeable people. So I think, you know, my advice is there's going to be a lot of preconceived notions coming into it. There, there's a lot of people from the acquisition community, a lot of people from the authorizing community, a lot of people from the appropriating community. And there's a few people from the resource allocation community. They're all going to come in with different perspectives. Uh, I think first they need to sit down, get together, and get the ground truth. Uh, a lot of these people will think they know the PPB process. They probably don't know it quite as well as uh, they think they do. So I would say first focus on what the actual process is and not what somebody who, who 
was in a different function and maybe touch the PPV process every now and again, not focus on what they think uh, the PPV process is. Second is identify clear problems. That's what I try to help with with this report. I think from my experience, uh, I think there's a couple of really key, really clear uh, problems uh, with the PPV process. Focus on a small number of significant and clear and compelling problems. The lack of strategic analysis and the ability to translate the NDS to resource allocation plans. Um, they, the speed with which we can bring uh, new capabilities and new technologies into the force. The lack of use of actual realized performance data. Focus on concrete problems like that. And then the third would be, uh, and really look at what the solutions are. Tee up different alternatives to solutions. Don't jump to preconceived notions. Look at uh, study the process, build out actual analytically informed alternatives, and then select one. And then the last two things I'd say would be uh, a lot of it's not going to be process changes. So one we already talked about, look at business practice changes like as a service purchasing of capability, like digital transformation. A second would be look at institutional arrangements uh, within the department, the use of working capital funds, the use of accrual funding, uh, how incentives change when you change different structures and institutional arrangements uh, within the department. A significant portion of personnel costs reside outside the personnel accounts. What if you brought the personnel costs inside the personnel accounts? A significant amount of costs borne by the department are future unfunded liabilities. What if you brought those future unfunded liabilities into the present budget so decision makers today could see the full effect of the decisions they're making today? Use that through accrual funding, use that through uh, thinking about how you deal with sustainment costs of weapon systems, et cetera. So don't think exclusively about process steps and, and organizations and deck chairs in the department. Think about the business practice of the department and think about the institutional arrangements within the department. Well, John, I want to thank you. It was great working with you to uh, on this report and really very insightful, very timely report. But there's one thing I also want to thank you for is your dedicated service to the country, your previous role uh, back with the Army. So uh, once again, uh, thanks again for joining me, John. Thank you very much. Great chat. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Three Reforms to Improve Defense Resource Management, and most recently, former Acting Secretary of the U.S. Army. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283-DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick, 
Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.